I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. This afternoon, on an early autumn day, we're standing in the fruit garden at RHS Garden Wisley. There's the occasional shower, one's just passed, another one I can see in the distance, but I expect we'll manage to dodge it. And what we see in front of us is an area of ground that's possibly about, oh, I would say about 400 square metres, and it is covered in the most amazing, glorious, incredible display of ripe pumpkins and squashes. And it looks absolutely fantastic. We've passed the autumn equinox and officially entered my favourite time of year, the harvest season. It's time to pick apples, pears and autumn fruiting raspberries, harvest squashes, beetroot aubergines, leeks and much, much more. Really relish the flavours of late September into October. And of course, what we can grow and how crops perform is changing. As our climate becomes more unpredictable and more extreme, some of our go-to classics are no longer shoe-in wins. So this week, we want to honour the harvest season, while also exploring what it means to grow food resiliently, and in a way that benefits both our gardens and our stomachs. We're starting off at RHS Garden Wisley, talking all things pumpkins and squashes. Garden manager Sheila Das will then walk us through the soil gut microbiome connection. And finally, we're exploring some lesser-known fruit and veg that can boost our garden's biodiversity and hardiness. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. We're off to Wisley's Pumpkin Patch to explore this year's bounty with horticulturalist Pavlina Capsalis. Well, Pav has a list of no less than 67 different pumpkins and squashes, which some might call excessive. I prefer to call it glorious. But right in front of us are some of the most amazing ones one could hope to see. There's the Turk's cap one that I'm looking at here. It is like the caps that the Ottoman Turks used to wear. It's got a broad round turban with an orange colour and then orange and white and a sort of maroon colour swelling up in the middle. It's a glorious one. And then in the distance, we can see my favourites, Crown Prince, which are the blue-green squash. They've got the most most fantastic flavour and texture. I always love them best. And then further away, the most spectacular ones, great big orange Halloween pumpkins. And so here to tell us more is Pav of the RHS Garden Team. 
So these are really ready to harvest now. And yeah, we are going to be all gathering them together and um, we will be putting them for a curing period of time to our glass house. It always helps to put the pumpkins for a little bit away in a sunny, warm spot so they can cure. So then after this period of curing, you just put them somewhere where you can store them, kind of dry, cool space, but there is no frost and they are much better storing if you cure them. So. They are definitely ready. You can see it's a little bit, the foliage is dying down. That's one of the signs, which is definitely telling you that your pumpkins are ready. The colors are amazing, as Guy mentioned, and uh, we will be harvesting them next week. Yes, I think also the flavor improves if you store them for a couple of weeks as the starch turns to sugar. And these blue-gray ones, which are my favorites, Crown Prince is probably the best. Well, I only threw out the last one, which I didn't actually get round to eating, which is a bit of a waste. Only threw it out in July. So um, they do have the most amazing storage capacity and an excellent supplement to all those winter carrots and parsnips, which are, are very nice, but squash are, uh, are nice too. And is there any specific um, change in the neck of pumpkins, Pav? that indicates they're ready to harvest? Well, they're really hard and they get dry, basically. So you can actually see it, you can, I can describe it. The stem kind of hardens off and becomes brown and that's the time when they're ready to harvest. I can see some, some of the pumpkins haven't actually died here, Pav. They've actually got some green leaves and they're beginning to grow. They're having a kind of second wind and I really enjoyed the heavy rain we had last night. And I can see some immature pumpkins forming on them. When is it time to give up on those pumpkins and consign them to the compost bin? Well, being honest, I would probably start giving up on them now um, because at this time of the year we can expect frost very soon. We usually start expecting frost from about third week in September. It might not be the case, but that's the time when the pumpkins basically going to die down uh, because they are tender plants. You can keep them going and I think you, know, you will see, you will probably be able to harvest the unripe fruit and use it straight away but they are not good for storing if they are unripe and at this time of the year it would be very rare if they would get there to change the color and ripen. Well with so many different cultivars here Pav I do hope you've had a chance to try some of them and can can suggest some ones that got really good flavors and which ones are perhaps best given away to someone you don't like very much. Oh yeah that's a a really good question you're asking. We actually had a little little tasting session last year with my colleagues from Edibles and we each took uh, one pumpkin home and then we had a little chart kind of uh, marking which one is the best. Crown Prince always scores high but surprisingly on the top came the Queensland Blue, Queensland Blue and Bonbon actually were two top ones flavour wise which we really like. They had a really nutty sweet flavor and really dense texture so they were really nice and what we done with them we just plain roasted them so they were all prepared in the same way so i would recommend those three but also it's loads of different ones i, I grow banana type of uh, squash banana squash on my allotment they are really nice they probably don't store that well but they have got a little bit lighter flavors they take possibly the flavors of whatever you cook from them. They are not so dense, not so uh, nutty, but good for some different type of cooking. Uchikikuri, it's another one which I would recommend. 
Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I have grown Crown Prince and I, I, I like it a lot. And I've grown Queensland Blue and Queensland Blue's seed is a lot cheaper than Crown Prince seed as well, which adds in its favour in my opinion. But Bonbon I haven't tried, so I'm definitely going to put that on my list for next year. I think the roaster ones from the United States are particularly nice. I only started growing them in the last uh, two or three years. The Georgia Roaster is the one that I've grown and that's got a lovely sweet flavour. But it doesn't keep that well, but then that's an excuse for lots of squash dishes in the autumn. Thanks there to Pav. The pumpkins we grow at Wisley are normally used to create a huge display for the Festival of Flavours here, but due to roadworks, the event at Wisley has been cancelled. However, you can still catch the Festival of Flavours at Hyde Hall this weekend or at Rosemore from the 7th to 8th of October. Last week's show was all about cultivating healthy soil. We chatted about the importance of composting and establishing a rich mix of earthworms and other invertebrates in the ground to encourage biodiversity, sound structure and fertility. And this next feature ties together last week's episode on soil condition with this one, on harvest. We're talking about the link between a healthy soil microbiome and a healthy gut microbiome. Here's garden manager Sheila Das to take it away. So my interest in food growing really and interest in health has really meshed together in the last couple of years in a heightened fashion. But probably I would say about seven years ago, I, I was incredibly overweight and I wanted to do something about it. So I lost a lot of weight. In English money, I lost seven stone in weight. And all the while, I'm still growing food. So I'd still been doing that all along anyway. But I realised as time went on, actually, that the food I was growing played a really huge part in my health. And the more I've come to understand it, the more I've come to understand that good, clean food, and that's a, an interesting way of putting it, but food grown really without chemicals is uh, a really, really powerful and positive way to take ownership of your own health. Yeah, so I've learned much more about gut health in the last couple of years. And I think it's a topic that many people will realise is in the media a lot now. We're learning a lot about our, our gut microbiome. So the set of organisms that live in our gut that maintain a healthy gut, which helps us to extract nutrient from food. And it, it has a huge factor to play in our immune system. So general health can be really, really nurtured by a good, healthy gut. So in terms of our own health, you know, the way that our bodies process fats and sugars and our gut microbiomes and the bacteria in there and all of that biology is different for everyone. So it's not really okay to say, oh yes, do this and, and that's the right thing to do in terms of healthy eating. Everybody's different. And the connection that I've made between that and our soil environments and our garden environments, our landscapes, is everyone is different. So we're at a point now in horticulture where we can't just say, do this and it will work, because it's do this and it could work if, you know, if these set of other circumstances are in place. And that's actually the same with your gut microbiome, I believe, from what I've understood, not being an expert, being a gardener and not a doctor. But that for me feels really exciting and the connection is, is becoming more and more powerful as I learn more about it. 
Your soil has a microbiome as well as your gut, so they work in very similar fashions. They're made up of millions and billions of organisms. I mean, there's all sorts of numbers get bandied around, but some people say pick up a handful of soil and it's got over seven billion organisms in it. I'm sure it could even be more than that, which is mind-blowing, isn't it, when you think how many billion people there are on the earth, but actually the diversity in, in the soil is huge. Into that, you inject plants, and plants interface with that whole microbiome through their roots and actually in terms of how they draw down energy from the sun, feed the soil microbiome. So if our guts take nutrients out of what we eat and help us to perpetuate and power ourselves, plants will kind of feed that soil microbiome and in return, all of those organisms will feed back into the plant some goodness. So it's a truly kind of circular and symbiotic relationship as I understand it. A healthy soil microbiome is going to be full of diversity. Now, diversity is a word that we use a lot at the moment, and it seems to be something that we come back to, whether it be about human activity or it's about our environment, biodiversity, and the biodiversity of the soil is really important. So a healthy microbiome will protect the soil by creating that diversity. So all of those different creatures are kind of having different relationships with each other, with plant roots, and all that activity helps to create a structure in the soil as well. So it's kind of the sort of biological side of the soil, the structural side of the soil, and to some degree then I guess the chemical side of the soil when the nutrients start to, to become processed. Why do we want good structure in soil? We want air and water in soil. Those are the two things that help soil to behave in a really healthy fashion, and therefore help plants to thrive when they get their roots into soil. Yeah, so how are microbiomes in soil under threat is a really good question, and it kind of comes back to my core passion, which is food. We've done a lot to try and sustain ourselves, in particularly in the 20th century. To do what we think is the right thing is to create enough food for our ever-swelling Earth population. Unfortunately, and this is what we've done, we're very good as humans at trying to be efficient and trying to produce things to scale and so that everybody has enough. But unfortunately, what we've done is we've tried to produce too much in monoculture, really, in large spaces. And we've done that by degrading soil, by ploughing it, by disturbing all of those lovely networks and channels that are building up all the life in the soil that help to create the cycle of nutrients and the kind of soil food web. And we've also done that by the overuse of artificial fertilisers and other chemicals. So we're putting things into soil, thinking that we're accelerating the production of a crop, but actually what we're doing probably is upsetting all the balance of the ecosystem that should be there. And then once you've upset the ecosystem, it never works properly. And then you're tied into having to apply all of these sort of chemicals and things all the time. So actually starting to restore soil, letting that cycle run round as it's supposed to, as nature wanted it to. So plants draw down energy from sun, make sugars, put sugars down through their roots, feed organisms around their roots, which in turn then help to produce nutrients that feed plant. And it is a circle. If we can introduce that circle again, that's really exciting because potentially we can create a system that's self-sustaining, that doesn't require us to put extra external things on, whether they be synthetic chemicals or what we perceive to be more organic things. And then, yeah, resilient, long-term, sustainable. There isn't a clear one-size-fits-all answer, and, and I would definitely say that we all need to work out what works for our situation. 
But what I do, say at my allotment, is I'm, I'm using organic mulches a lot, so composts, manures, things like that, and laying a surface on top of the soil. So the thing that we don't want is bare soil. Ideally, we want plants growing in soil all the time. And what's really exciting as an edible grower, and we're experimenting a lot in the World Food Garden here at Wisley, with plants that we can grow all the way throughout the winter. So we don't want to see our beds empty, we want crops growing them all the time. And then if there are plants growing in soil, those plants are feeding into that soil as well with all those root exudates that are feeding the soil microbiome. So that's really positive. So that's one way of looking after your soil over the winter, or you could put an organic mulch down or do both. I'm really keen to start experimenting both at Wisley and in my own allotment with green manures. So traditionally or conventionally, people have used green manures as a temporary crop and they've dug them in. So they're thinking of that as organic matter. What you can do with green manures, and you can even do it with plants that are not just annual but are perennial and will therefore come back year after year, is that you can just leave them in and cut the tops off and plant in between. Growing a lot of different things in your food growing environment, and whether that be an allotment or it's your garden or it's a few pots on the back doorstep or even on your windowsill is really powerful and positive and brings us back to the gut microbiome. So the nutritionists who are looking at this now are starting to understand that the more diversity you can give your guts, the better, really. So you, you are feeding all sorts of different biology in your guts by eating different plant materials. So actually growing a little bit of a lot of things is really good for your guts, but it's also really good for the environment and it's more resilient. So it's good for the environment because you're offering up quite a wide range of plants that different insects and different organisms can interact with. So biodiversity is really good and powerful in that respect. You're growing different roots into your soil. Now, they might be going down to different depths, which is helping the structure. They might be emitting different things from their roots, exudates. And then also that diversity is allowing resilience if the weather does something funny, which occasionally it started doing. Plants are the answer. Now, this is a place to say it, obviously. But they are because they give so much to the system. So looking after your soil by maintaining a diversity of plants, adjust to your own situations. Don't give yourself an impossible goal. But make your peace with the fact that we can't have it all is, would be my biggest piece of advice. Not even just make your peace with it, but celebrate that because it is an opportunity to find out something new. Thanks there to Sheila. I'm one of the few allotment holders on my site who actually grows stuff for the winter. The art of growing beds of carrots and parsnips and leeks and Brussels sprouts and cabbages for winter it doesn't seem to infuse gardeners like it used to. To be fair, the crops are very good at supermarkets and there's not a great flavour boost from growing your own at home, unlike summer vegetables, you know, where there's nothing like a tomato picked fresh from the vine. All the same, growing a nice lot of Brussels sprouts and leeks and cabbages and such like does improve the soil to some extent because they leave an enormous amount of root and leaf and that helps to keep the fertility up but it's nothing like a green manure would provide, and I still like to buy in a few loads of manure for my plot every year. And as well as growing green manures, an easy way of increasing the biodiversity of your plot each year is by growing a new thing. And this year, I've grown some Asian greens. I quite like Asian greens, but they're tricky to grow, so I haven't put in a lot, but they're looking very promising at the moment. 
And on that note, plantsman Kevin Hobbs and woodland ecologist Arthur Caesar Ehrlich wrote a new book celebrating unusual and sustainable crops that can help ensure food security and biodiversity in a changing climate. It's called Edible, 70 Sustainable Plants That Are Changing How We Eat. And Kevin and Arthur are joining us today to chat about their growing philosophy and to share a few examples of unexpected edible plants you can grow around this time of year. Hi, well, I'm Kevin Hobbs. I'm a grower and horticulturalist. I not only work in the, the field of ornamentals, but also to a lesser extent, but an important extent in the world of edibles. And I had this idea over the, over the years that it'd be great to communicate some of these lesser known edible plants from around the world. But I needed someone to join me that was a foodie that could describe the flavours and the uses in culinary terms. And that's where I set about finding Arta. And I think he probably didn't even finish the sentence. And I said yes, because everything about it is very much in my wheelhouse. I do a lot of research and also work more and more in the area of like the future of our food system as a whole. So this was just really fascinating for me, exploring plants which could or probably will be the foundation of the food system of the future. Plants that are really, really resilient, plants that can deal with, well, almost everything that climate change and everything throws at them while still producing copious amounts of food for us. And so I was really fascinated and it was a really fantastic journey with Kevin. So if you look at our food system today, it looks from the outside, it really looks like we have a super diverse choice of products and produce and foods all over the shelves in the supermarket. But in reality, when you look a bit closer, you see that most of those foods are made from three or four plants, those being wheat, maize, soy and rice. And so this is, of course, quite risky, basing most of our food on only four plants. And those four plants are then heavily selected and hybridized. And we really need a very stable and highly diverse food system, which can, you know, change with the weather patterns and with the climate zones. And this is what we, we looked into with those plants. So with this being said, we want to introduce you to a few plants in the book, which can be planted right now in autumn and can be enjoyed already next year or maybe a bit later with the first being. So I'd like to uh, talk about oak and acorns, of course, and the benefits, the edible properties of, of acorns. And obviously oaks are ubiquitous. So many around the world are admired for their sheer majesty and ascetic. And of course, we have famously Quercus robo in, in the UK, whose edible acorns have been underutilized now for some time. And an example I'd give is the Valonia oak, Quercus itabrensis subspecies macrolepis. And you know, I'll let Arta talk about the, the food elements of it. So for most of human history, oaks or acorns especially used to be like a hugely important food, especially in wintertime. But in, in recent years, it somewhat got lost in most countries, with one exception being Korea, where there is still a huge acorn processing industry, where they process millions of tons every year. The one problem being with acorns that they have quite a lot of tannins in them. And the way to remove it is to, you know, cook it in, in water for quite a while or, you know, uh, let it seep out in cold water, whatever approach you want to use. 
And then they grind it into a flour and this acorn flour can be used in any kind of baked good and they make anything from kind of udon noodles out of it to pasta and bread. But uh, one thing that fascinated me probably the most is using it as a kind of a starchy basis to make some kind of almost oak-based tofu, which is a hugely traditional dish in Korea and is also exported all around the world to like expat Korean communities. And this is for me a perfect example of a future food, the oak, which grows, you know, almost in any kind of condition, you know, like very dry soil and especially in dry, dry summers and, you know, cold winters and so, but still producing a bountiful crop, which is completely underutilized at this moment and has huge potential in the future, not just as kind of a, like a speciality product maybe, but really as a mainstream food that can be used in anything from bread to pasta to, yeah, every, every kind of baked good you could imagine and more. So the second crop we'd like to talk about that is obviously more easily accommodated, even in the smallest garden, is great burdock, Arctium lapa. It's a circumpolar pioneer of temperate regions. Its natural base, we botanists believe, is Eurasia, but it's been so successful in its ability to spread around temperate regions that it'll be a familiar plant to so many. And of course, you'll see it growing in hedgerows and in waste ground around the UK. It's got you know, huge, huge leaves. And at this time of year, very distinctive like seed heads. And in fact, that's, that's why it's been so successful in being distributed because of course, it's not only caught on the fur of animals, but no doubt got caught on hessian sacks transporting grains and other products around the world. And in fact, it's so effective at fastening, it was the inspiration for the invention of Velcro in 1941. So basically, the, the harvestable root, you can harvest in the first year. It's, it's essentially like a biennial plant. So the first year, it's putting on its foliage growth, and you want to harvest it at that stage before it goes into its flowering growth because the root is actually more um, tender and sweeter at that stage. So it's a perfect time if you can source it as a young plant now, you can plant it in autumn, it'll establish and it can flower and you can harvest seeds and then you can have a sustainable crop from there on. And of course you can also harvest seed from the wild in the obviously in a sustainable respectful way but there's no shortage of great burdock no. so you don't need to worry about uh, <laughs> over harvesting the seed so great burdock is absolutely a wonderful edible uh, plant as a whole especially of course the roots which are actually also in japan they're properly grown on big fields and it's a huge delicacy in in, in the country and the way you can use the roots is either eat them raw or you know prepare them in several dishes cook them bake them all that it has uh, flavor notes i would probably put in the direction of artichokes but with a certain sweetness but not only the roots can be eaten but also the young stems so in in early summer essentially you can use the leaf stems like you would uh, use rhubarb but more in a bit of a savory way and even the younger leaves can be used in kind of a spinach like fashion so almost the whole plant essentially is edible as long as you harvest it in the first year of its growth. And I really like this kind of this picture it paints now because in our countries, both in the UK and Austria, it's seen as a complete nuisance. 
which mostly gets stuck in our dog's fur or so. But in reality, it's it's a huge delicacy in many countries and grows, you know, as, as Kevin before said, in, in wasteland. So it grows on really poor soil with not a lot of water availability, which makes it a perfect food for our future because it grows with very, very little human input and produces a lot of valuable food. I ought to say at this stage, if you do forage, and great burdock's a good example, of course, uh, just keep in mind where the plant is growing, you know, not in soil that may have been a site of an industrial area where you don't know what uh, chemicals and pollutants may have poisoned the soil. So just be wary of that. You know, you'd be looking for more natural situations where the great burdock is growing before you harvest. So our hope for the book is that listeners get simply inspired by all the huge diversity that's out there, not just uh, in plants, but especially also in, in flavors and textures that's still to discover. And by this, I think they will make an important contribution to the future diversity, both in terms of biodiversity, but also in flavor diversity of our food system. Thanks there to Arthur and Kevin. You got a tiny taste of the many plants Kevin and Arta discuss in Edible, so do check out their book if you'd like to learn more. You can find a link in our show notes. Well, that's about it for today. But before you go, as always, here is what you can get up to in the garden this week. It's harvest time, so get those potatoes indoors, gather the pumpkins and squashes, pick the tomatoes and raspberries, they won't last long now before winter comes. And it's also time to look after your lawn. It might need a mow and you can rake out any moss, apply a biological moss control which also feeds the lawn and possibly rake in some more lawn seed to fill in any gaps and thicken the sward. Things start to topple now under the wind and rain so perennials and annuals that have come to the end of their season, it's time to gather them up and take them to the compost bin. It's peak time for composting so get that compost bin rotting for lovely compost for next year. Also, just a quick note, if you have a burning question you want answered on the show, we have an RHS podcast email address where you can send your queries. It's simply podcast at rhs.org.uk. Again, that's podcast at rhs.org.uk. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. 
Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs>